you've clicked on Behind the Buzz, a public fits bi-weekly podcast scrutinizing the myriad details that made up the production of some of our most popular past shows. I'm Joe Kukin, producing director here at APF, joined by artistic director Anne-Marie Perreth. Hi there. And together we'll be telling stories about the work that went into bringing these plays to life. This is episode number two, and today we're continuing the conversation about Margaret Edson's Wit, the uh, opening show of our 2017-2018 season here in, in Las Vegas. We'll be joined by actors Tina Rice, who portrayed Vivian Baring, and Barbara King, who played Vivian's mentor and mother figure, really, uh, E.M. Ashford, a character based upon real-life Oxford scholar Dame Helen Gardner. Also joining us, Ken Kukin, lifelong English literature professor, amateur thespian, and also, perhaps most importantly, uh, my dad. He served as the dramaturg for the play and was instrumental in helping the cast, all of us really, understand the pretty complicated language involved in the poetry of John Donne. So, Emery... Why would the production team of Wit need an English literature professor to talk to the cast about 16th century metaphysical poet John Donne? Well, the play is actually made up of a lot of medical language and actual um, poetry from John Donne. So in order for us to understand the intricacies of that language, we needed an expert to come in and, and help us decode that because a lot of the play is is based on his poetry. Well, yeah, and her journey of... of uh, from life into to death kind of mirrors some of his metaphysical work, what are known as the Holy Sonnets. Yeah, actually, uh, towards the end of his life, he uh, started writing um, more metaphysical poetry or poetry because he was he had lost his wife and he had lost uh, some of his children and he was wondering about his own salvation. And so he wrote the Holy Sonnets, right, which has to do with... Um, uh, a person's mortality, uh, um, life, death, and the afterlife. And so um, not only do you have to understand the poetry, but you have to understand that Vivian Baring is also going through that process. She's in the process of dying because she has ovarian cancer. And so she's having all these flashbacks to when she's teaching. And she's going back to these moments where she's examining the, the poetry that pertains to her own um, particular situation. Uh, for people who haven't seen the play or don't know Wit, Wit is about um, a very scholarly uh, poetry, specifically a, a poetry literature professor in an unnamed Ivy League school who discovers that she has late stage ovarian cancer. Uh, there is no fourth wall in this play, really. She speaks directly to the audience, and the play is really um, her journey of discovery of, of this disease through the experimental treatment process, right up to the very moment of her death and all the discoveries that come with that. Is that a pretty good synopsis of absolutely, the play? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's funny to introduce your your own father in a sort of objective way, but I, 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 I can say my dad, Ken Kukin, was a native of Steubenville, Ohio. He's been a 60-year resident of Las Vegas. He was a lifelong teacher of English literature, mostly at Clark High School um, and later the Mellows School, the Preparatory Academy. Um, he's taught at the university level, which you said you didn't particularly care for. He's taught at the community college level, which you said you didn't particularly care for and has really... He's much like Margaret Edson, yeah. <laughs> right? She didn't want to... She was equipped to teach on the college level, but she preferred to teach, you know, uh, she teaches sixth graders now. 
Yeah. Yeah. You see, she had a, a, a specialty as well. So you heard what Emery said about about the incorporation of the poetry into the play. Is that was that your perspective? Uh, yes, on a couple of levels. The particular poem that uh, Edson singled out was one of the Holy Sonnets, uh, written in a particularly excellent form for disputation, and the character Vivian Baring. Mm-hmm is in a position, she's concerned with her own death coming up. And in the grief process, she is um, perhaps arguing with God, at least subconsciously. And so she chooses a holy sonnet that uh, is Italian sonnet, which, as I said before, is uniquely uh, set out for disputation. You have the first eight lines, the octave, where the argument is laid out, usually developed in two quatrains, and it is in this case. And then you have a volta or a turning, and in the sestet, you have a response to the argument, a submission to the argument, or a resolution of the argument, depending on what the poet wanted. But she chose a particularly apt poem for this particular play. Well, and a, and, a, and a particularly apt poet as well. Yes, indeed. Um, Dunn is, of course, referred to as the greatest of the metaphysical poets. He wasn't a particularly great theologian, but that was not part of his background. He uh, he was a very religious man. Isn't it, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but, but isn't it true that like a bunch of his children had died and then his wife died and that's what led him to write all the holy sonnets? You're right in terms of the history of it. His wife and daughter had died. A number of his children had died. Um, and in his early life, he's often compared to St. Augustine or Augustine, however you want to pronounce it, in that he led a... Uh, his youth was filled with sowing of wild oats, and then you pray for the crop failure in the second half of your life, and he did essentially <laughs> the same thing. But a large section of his early poetry was uh, secular. It was um, some people would consider licentious, and some uh, to some degrees. But at the same time, he was honing his skills in what later became known as a metaphysical conceit, these weird, shocking, widely disparate uh, allusions and comparisons. And uh, so later on, when he was perhaps examining his own life and uh, the death of his family, as you mentioned, uh, and he shifted his attention to the Holy Sonnets, uh, his um, wonderful tracks for uh, sermons uh, that he used later on when he became dean of uh, St. Paul's, uh, a great speaker. People came from miles around just to hear his, his uh, sermons. But they were all rooted in religion and uh, arguing with God to some degree. Well, you, they, use, you use the term disputation. Yes. Yeah. Can can you define that? Because that is arguing, right? That's that's yes, the exactly. yeah, arguing with God. Is there a better is there a better definition than that? Well, it, a, a, a disputation isn't necessarily an argument, except in the um, literal um, defining sense of the word argument, where you lay out a train of thought to prove a point. Uh, in as I said, in the in the octave 
of any stand, of any sonnet, whether it's Elizabethan or um, Italian, uh, you have the laying out of an argument and either the solving of the argument, the uh, um, submission to the argument, um, whatever, you know, a resolution uh, of the argument. So all I can say is, in that particular poem, he, it is a disputation. All of his holy sonnets are not. Uh, there are only four, I believe, of his uh, holy sonnets that directly would take that form of, of a dispute. Well, the, well, the only reason I brought it up was because I think there's a reason why Edson chose that particular poet for this play and for this this character and the idea of of a long going argument or a long going discussion or a, a concern about afterlife and uh, um, you know the what did you say the the reaping of the reaping of the sowing of the crops you know I think there's a reason why she she chose him uh, I, I I don't mean to cut you off but I I think the reason that she to chose him is in the title of the play uh, wit. Because in his time, in, uh, well, well, wit did not mean then what it means to us. We tend to be flippant about wit. Wit is a very quick repost. It's, it's, we think of Oscar Wilde in, in terms of being a, a wit. That's the more modern yeah, well, definition. Yeah. Or what no, about um, like Jerry Seinfeld? Yeah, you know, any stand-up yeah. comic who gives you that quick uh, response, we think, "Oh, he's such a witty fellow," but that's not the wit of of uh, Dunn or even Shakespeare, for that matter. Uh, any of the the poets of that period, from the English Renaissance up to. I'm going to say the Romantic period, but even perhaps beyond that, uh, for instance. Um, George Gordon, what's his name? Lord Byron, a very witty fellow, uh, and it, not in the sense that we regard wit. So if we're not talking about wit in terms of wittiness, the way we think about it today, and, and, and I mentioned Oscar Wilde, and you mentioned you know Jerry Seinfeld, and what is what is the definition of wit as applies to the play? Why is the name of this show wit? Well, wit, the way done, and I'm sure the way uh, Margaret Edson uh, conceives it, is a much more profound approach to uh, not only humor, but uh, as a scholarly treatment and uh, process of thinking about just about anything. Now, in in Dunn's case, and the metaphysical uh, conceit notion, his wit was a matter of finding comparisons between two widely dissimilar objects or ideas and somehow relating them to a particular idea or theme that he had going for him in any in a poem or whatever in order to understand wit in the sense that Dunn or even Shakespeare uses it you had to be very widely read you had to have a you had to bring a, an enormous background to the uh a poem at hand or, or whatever the discussion was. I, you know, I, I once had a teacher in undergraduate school and he said one day that every time you look at a painting, a new painting, whether it's in a museum or someone's home or whatever, you have to bring every other painting that you have seen in your life 
to that painting in order to analyze it or say something profound or specific about it. And that really stunned me when, uh, of course, I was only 20 years old at the time, but <laughs> I thought, my God, what a responsibility that puts upon you as, a, as an observer, a casual observer or a profound reader or thinker, or whatever. That's an enormous requirement to bring every damn painting you've ever looked at in your life. I'm, even at 20, I had seen a lot of paintings. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of that way with Dunn as well, because he was so widely read in mythology, in uh, language, in law, in uh, uh, theology, that he had all of these things that he could bring together, even though they were dissimilar and unlike each other, they fitted together, meshed nicely in the theme or the idea that he was developing. I want to bring Tina Rice into uh, into this conversation. I'll just reintroduce Tina Rice. Tina um, is a company member with a public fit theater company. You you portrayed Vivian Baring in our production of, of Wit. I did. Yeah, and uh, an amazing show for you. you. Won a bunch of awards. A lot of a lot of focus on on uh, your your tremendous work. But you've told us in the past that uh, in in other conversations that it was some of these words um, in the in the play, not just the medical terms, but the poetry itself, that you found it pretty intimidating. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? I mean, I'm hearing from from Pop here about the just sort of the extensive um, education you kind of have to have before you can even approach the the poetry. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, Ken was very helpful during the process because he helped break down one of the poems that she delivers. The entire sonnet actually in the audience, to the audience, excuse me. What's well, a flashback? She's, she's delivering one of her famous lectures that she delivers to, I, uh, I think the idea is that she's actually speaking to a, a lecture hall full of, of students. And in this case, the audience is, is representing that, those, those people. And it's a, it's a flashback that she's having in the midst of a breakdown. Is that a pretty good? Right. She's pretty far along in her uh, chemotherapy and her process and her illness. It's, um, she's taking a turn, kind of a downturn for the worse. And uh, she does fantasize of one of her lectures and uh, in, this, in this poem in particular, and as it relates to asking God for forgiveness or actually not asking God for forgiveness. Yeah, wondering why forgiveness is necessary in the, in the first place. You want, to, want to, you want to read that poem, Dad? It, it, it's, uh... If poisonous minerals and if that tree whose fruit threw death on else immortal us, if lecherous goats, if serpents and enemies cannot be done to us, why should I be? Why should intent or reason born in me make sins else equal in me more heinous? And mercy, being easy and glorious to God and his stern wrath, why threatens he? But who am I that dare dispute with thee? Oh, God, oh! Of thy only worthy blood and my tears make a heavenly Lethean flood and drown in it my sins black memory. That thou remember then some claim as debt, I think it mercy if thou wilt forget. And that's that seems pretty specific to her. Well, I, at first reading, it seems kind of specific to her state of mind. Now, I was I was calling back to my mind uh, Tina's performance in that particular um, scene, and she really attacked that poem, whacking it with a. Uh, a pointer and um, disputationally, which is exactly what is, is going that really on in Dunn's mind. Hell, is disputation really <laughs> work for me? Is that really work? 
But you teach for 60 years, I guess you could make up your own damn words if you want to. Yes, Shakespeare did. Possibilities. <laughs> okay. But, uh, but I, I, I don't know how much of it was yours or how much of it was uh, AM's uh, direction, but Joe's direction, who's ever, that was exactly the way to attack that poem in her state of mind because she's dying and she is quite moderately pissed at it. And so she's delineating it for her students, but she's doing it in a halfway violent manner. Well... So you talked about how you're in this particular decline, right? And so when your your health is failing you, right, you go back to a situation where you feel in control. And when she was in the classroom, Vivian Baring, the character, she felt in control, right? Because she understood what everything meant and, and she had ownership of that particular space. She intimidated all of those students. And that was a place where she felt that she was right, and now she wasn't feeling in control. So that's where that flashback takes her. Well, I think one, and one of the great, I think for me and Tina, I'd like you to talk about this a little bit. One of the great, I think, transitions in that, in that scene, in that, in that, that one monologue about that play. And I think there's a, a number of discoveries that you make about the play that you might, or about the poem rather, that you might not have had as a, as a, just as a pedant, but that you had as now as a patient, someone who's facing imminent death, the poem, I think, changed its meaning a little bit for you. Is that a fair? Oh, my goodness, yes. So um, so what Ken was saying back to, you have to look at that painting, you have to recall every painting that you've ever seen before in order to comment on it with profoundness or something. So uh, that's kind of the same thing. This is a person who, uh, Vivian, was a person who was very well-read, a scholarly person who spent her whole entire life up until that point getting this type of um, depth and education and sense of what this particular poet and all of the literature, but focusing in this particular type of poetry was about. So uh, that in and of itself is intimidating because I don't have that background. So yeah, it was, but by the time you, so to me, it felt like a puzzle. It felt like a fun game that if I could dissect this in a way that I could convey that to the audience so that they then could understand this in some way. That was kind of like the Tina objective, not the Vivian objective, <laughs> but the <laughs> Tina objective is if I can find a way to understand this so well and make this so personal and understand the through line and the thought process. And if then I can make some sort of idea, give this idea to the audience, then that would be way more interesting than just delivering a sonnet. Well, when I, but I think the theme of the sonnet too, the notion of, of, I mean, to really tell me if I'm wrong about this pop, but I think that to really simplify it, the poem really is, why is there divine judgment? Right? If, if you were to subtitle the poem or to, or to really sum it up, He's questioning the very notion of of divine judgment. Why should there be divine judgment when God has the choice to not judge? And he also has the choice to perhaps judge the tree in the Garden of Eden and and, and snakes and rats and goats. But I think he, she's questioning both sides, she's right? She's questioning both sides. So the, the notion of why is there judgment... I think would place very place a very high um, uh, part in a woman who is facing imminent death and not having um, a lot of other connections in her life because this was a woman because she was so educated, uh, not necessarily because you're educated, you choose to isolate yourself, but her choices led her to some sort of isolation from other people, holding them at arm's length, not having a lot of close relationships, and then um, realizing that yeah if 
I'm faced with mortality. Who, who's my best buddy right now? It's probably God. <laughs> so uh, I better kind of come to terms or may have some understanding of what might lie ahead or not. Did you feel like, did you feel like Vivian Baring was a theist? I didn't. Um, I didn't. I didn't really have that idea for her. I feel as though uh, sometimes there wasn't really other any under, other indication in the script that made led me to believe that she was. Yeah, but I, I suppose when you're facing death, you yeah, know. you got to think about it. You know uh, what was challenging for me because I didn't. I I had to have you like go line by line. What's what's happening here in this line? What's happening in in this next line? Um, but when, when we were all in the room together, I don't know if you, you remember this, but it was really important for me because I thought um, how Tina was saying, well, if I can just get the audience to understand it uh, in the way I'm understanding it, then I've, uh, you know, I've done my job. And I had the same fear. I thought, well, this poem's going to go over a lot of the audience's head. So do you remember in, in rehearsal, we talked about there was like different layers or different cracks that she had as if the poem in the flashback was hitting her differently than it did actually in front of the classroom. It was like the present day world and the flashback were kind of colliding. Absolutely. And delivering the sonnet in that theatrical way in which we did, while yes, this was the flashback that led us into that or the, the sonnet that led us back into that flashback during her lecture when we did that, it was theatrically just delivered as the sonnet, as a person delivering the sonnet, not necessarily the way that she would have delivered that to her class. So I think that also personalized it and maybe brought the audience in, I hope, I don't know. Well, I think for, like I, like I mentioned earlier, I think for me, the the interest, the drama of that scene, the interesting thing to me in that scene was watching your transition and watching you go from something that was a very... Um, uh, wrote lecture that you had given a hundred times before to the realization that it was more personal now and that, that perhaps Dunn got some things right and maybe didn't get other things right. That, in, that, that you had a perspective now about death and the divine, um, particular to your circumstance that, that, you know, artists up to this point had only been imagining. And there was the question of forgiveness, I think, in her mind, forgiveness for some of her behavior, not yeah. necessarily that she had done anything bad, but maybe the way that she had not developed relationships and treated people in a cold manner See, that's funny. and not been, like, been warm to to foster those types of things. So I think there is a type of forgiveness that she was wanting in order to... Uh, to realize that she needed that now. But that's funny because you're right. It's not about forgiveness for bad behavior. It's it's forgiveness for regret. It's it's almost asking to be forgiven for regretting the gift of life, regretting the life that you've led up to this point, and then that gift is is divine in nature. Joe, you, know, you want? I see that face. Well, only insofar as what you said about the gift of life. And we just discussed earlier Vivian, meaning alive, and bearing, meaning a direction towards or whatever. It's a wonderful name for this character, Vivian Bearing. It, it's just it, just like the title of the poem, just, or the play, rather. Well, it, well, you know, this is a good time then to really dig into some of the specifics of not just the title of the play, but now like literally, we're literally about to start talking about punctuation because there's a, a, an intricate scene, and we'll be talking with Barbara King about this um, in a little bit, about the uh, discussion about the difference between a comma and a semicolon. And it's so important, in fact, that, that often the title of the play 
wit, the I in wit is replaced with the semicolon, and the, the play is advertised as W semicolon T, which is a, um, we took up that idea as well, and when we advertised the play, it was uh, W semicolon T. So this might be a good time to to talk a bit about punctuation, because, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a scene in the play, and we'll be talking to Barbara King uh, later about about this. Who specifically. plays Ian Ashford? Who plays Ian Ashford? Uh, there's a scene with Vivian and Ian Ashford where they discuss the difference in a in a in a piece of poetry, um, where some versions include a comma, and some versions include a semicolon. Some versions include a period, and some versions include an exclamation point. You want? You, I saw that face. Uh, no, but uh, all I wanted to remark was that oftentimes editors are uh, the arbiters of where that particular punctuation goes, and if not the editor, sometimes the uh, uh, printer. The only reason we have apostrophes in English is not because of editors or of writers, but because of printers. Because when the printer was saving space by dropping letters way back when English used to be a more highly inflected language, they needed to indicate that a letter had been left out and they would put an apostrophe in there. Was that true? And, and they, exactly. When I lie to you, <laughs> that's exactly why we have apostrophes. It's simply printers. Who caught and 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 in more modern times, uh, a while back they tried to get something called an interbang that would combine the semi not the semicolon uh, question mark and the exclamation point. No printer in a world picked it up. Consequently, we do not have interbang. I like to have me a good interbang. <laughs> that seems like it'd be a pretty useful uh, a pretty useful mark actually. Some of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's. Poetry, for example, is considered incomplete because he, since he worked for a newspaper and it would go through the newspapers very often, that editors were often not just changing punctuation, but would change words. And that I know in, in one of my favorites, they, they spell the word gray two different ways based upon what the editor wanted and based upon what he wanted. So some of those distinctions uh, make for some unclear, you know, what, what did the, what did the poet really intend? I couldn't care less. <laughs> oh, really? Is that, is that true? <laughs> no, I can, I mean, it is a little dry. And when I read, I don't read for punctuation. Well, this, this whole and conversation I did find, is a little dry. We're talking about I know, but, some uh, early I, century romantic poetry. We're talking about punctuation, but I but think it's I think, important in creating this play. I, I think more uh, uh, sometimes when I think about that scene and that scene in particular, between Vivian Baring and her professor Ashford uh, is that it it shows the lengths at which the specificity of these particular types of professors will go, you know, the lengths they'll go to to make sure that this is conveyed when you read that particular text. So I know that writers... When we talk, when I talk to writers, I know that they're very specific. I chose this word specifically, this word for a reason, and um, and I'm sure it's probably the same about punctuation. But I know that I'm not in love with all of that when I read something. Mark Twain said, "I guess the it would difference inform- between the right word and almost the right word is the difference between the lightning and the lightning bug." Um. Yes. Okay. Yes. Punctuation can be dry. Yes. Uh, people can be intimidated by wit because of the language, but I don't think that was what Margaret Edson was trying to do. Well, she's made a clear choice to make it about. <laughs> yes. But the whole point of E.M. Ashford's conversation about the semicolon and the exclamation point at the end of that scene, she tells Vivian Baring, she's like, stop with the research. Go be a human. 
go to the park, spend time with your friends. That's really the point of the play. And because Vivian Baring didn't learn that, she had to spend her whole life shielding herself in the research corner with all of her shields and her language and her punctuation and her metaphysical conceits. And it did her no good. And she only discovered the beauty of life by having connection with people. And that's really the message of the play. So in order to get to the heart of the play, yes, you have to dig into all of these very uh, intellectual ideas to get to the real soul and grace of the play. Well, I think there's a, a discovery, too, that Vivian has in in that scene. She says, uh, Ashford talks about, you know, life is not about uh uh, exclamation points and and semicolons and all this sort of his, what she considers hysterical punk. She actually uses the phrase hysterical punctuation, and she says no. She says, and we'll talk about this more. You can cut all this. I just want to bring it up, but we we'll talk about this with Barbara because she talks about how that that death, the actual actual dying, isn't a big dramatic semicolon. It is a comma. It's nothing more than a breath between one state of life and then the life hereafter. And later on in the, the play, I think Vivian realizes that that's bullshit. That, that death is not a comma. Death is a fucking semicolon. And it's an exclamation point. Because when she recites that poem at the end, the last for the last time, the last word she says is exclamation point. And the, 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 the actual process of dying needs hysterical punctuation because it is hysterical in its in its brutality. That's my take on that scene. What do you... Th- Did she read that at the end? She well, does. Met, she, remember you said you choose to use the, the semicolon instead of the... the oh, oh, right on. And right. I forgot. <laughs> and the exclamation point. Like two years ago, people. Uh, three, but and the exclamation point. That's what I said three. I said three. Yeah, uh, yeah you're right. You're right. And, and remember, we had a whole discussion about that because I found that a little bit confounding. I thought she was going to take on the thinking of her instructor, but because of her experience in the in the story in her own life, that going through eight rounds of chemotherapy is so challenging and so painful, she had to release into that idea of the semicolon and that it is it is painful and it is not an easy transition. Well, this is another reason that I I, I, mm-hmm. that I think Dunn is a is a particularly apt uh, poet for this play is because I think that part of the sh- the play is an indictment on the artist's perspective of dying, and that we can create a sort of romanticized view of the death process, and we can discuss that maybe it's just a comma, just a breath, and that that dying is this sort of spiritually romantic thing. But what Vivian comes to find out in the very act of dying and the very nature of going through that, that process, the vomiting, the pain, the, the drugs, the, the uh, unending um, being treated like a piece of meat at the sort of inhumanity of the hospital staff from time to time, the death is not a, a comma. It's a semicolon and an exclamation point. And it is a, a very dramatic, it deserves his, hysterical punctuation. But also her, her discoveries, right? Her discoveries about herself and her life. Well, I mean, absolutely. not just the I painfulness love, in which she experienced her. I love how she says, I'm sorry, too, after she recites it in the way. And she doesn't hearken back to her, her professor. She, it's almost as if she wanted to give honor to what her professor said. Well, but I she chooses big, not to. Well, I remember a big conversation about the I'm sorry and, and Tina, mm-hmm. you having to come to some conclusion because you were given a lot of options about who the I'm sorry was to God, to yourself, 
to the audience, to your old professors. Do you remember where you landed in that discussion? Uh, for me, it was to the audience. Um, I, it was kind of... What uh, were you apologizing for? Um, just that, uh, to me, it was that her life was splashed up there and that she's sorry that she didn't uh, provide something more fulfilling or provide something more fulfilling for herself in her life. Um and it kind of like uh, I, I always thought in the back of my mind that the entire thing was a lecture in some way in this tiny, weird kind of uh, meta way that the, because she's speaking to the audience, it's just an extended lecture in some way, not in a dry Vivian bearing way that she treated the rest of her students, but it was just another presentation for her. And that when she treated her students the way that she did, it was also kind of a sorry to them. Well, that brings me to something else I wanted to talk about with you really quickly is that there's often with actors, um, doing classical work, this fear that they are going to be understood by a modern audience, that when we're doing Shakespeare, that the very language itself becomes um, an impediment to the audience understanding what's going on. And we take great care, I think, as directors and actors to to put the meaning forth and put the meaning forward. Did you have a similar challenge with this uh, modern, more modern play? Was there a concern? Because it's a, it is some some complicated language, even not, not just in the poetry, but in the in her own speeches as well. Right. Uh, so it's subtext city, sweetheart. So I just yeah. got, you know, Amory's just telling me all the time, uh, what is, what do you, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by this? So it's, it's sometimes it just doesn't matter what the actual words are when it comes out. Context clues were helpful or uh, pointing to what the meaning of that particular word is because something had just happened or, and sometimes, no, they're not going to know that word. I mean, there are some people who aren't going to have that vocab, that depth of vocabulary, but similar to delivering the sonnet, no, you're not going to get that on the first pass, all of the nuance and meaning and history. And, and, uh, it's going to, there are, there are words in that sonnet that people aren't going to know. Um, but it's what, what are you trying to say with it? What are you saying instead of actually saying the words, what are you, what are you trying to communicate? And I felt as long as I was doing that in some way, then it, it would, it would come across, it was something would come across you, that you, people you, could hang their hat on. You, you used a word that I would just wanted to find really quickly and, 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 and insult as many people in the audience as possible. Um, Emery, can you want to define subtext as it applies to uh, theatrical work? Uh, yeah, it's the, the meaning beneath the language. So like I could say to you that I, that I love you, but with those words, I actually mean that I hate you. Uh, and um, we do that all the time. Everything that we say has uh, subtext. Um, um, we don't, you know, walk around like robots and, and speak words literally. Everything has a meaning uh, meaning to it. Do I look fat in this dress? Uh, just kidding. <laughs> not, in, not, no. not at all. Anyway, um, kind of speaking to it, um, Tina was saying before, yes, the language is very difficult. Yes, they're not going to connect to it. But if the actor portraying the role is having an honest, connective experience on stage that they can translate, the audience will pick up on the truth of that situation 
and um, they will they will latch on to that and they will take the ride. And so that's that's the state that we we tried to keep Tina in throughout the whole play. And that's very hard to sustain. Well, and, and yourself, too. I mean, you've you've admitted to having some trepidation about approaching the language in this play and the, the big not just the big medical words, but the poetry and the, oh God, the subtext it was, of all of her, her entire experience. Well, of first of all, before you can tell an actor to you know, provide instruction or guidance, right? You have to understand what it says yourself, right? And I I was crawling along at first. It, it took me the whole rehearsal process to feel <laughs> like I could direct the play. Uh, um, interestingly enough, like I, I learned how to direct a play like this by being guided by um, more intellectual types, well, because I, it, it's not, it's wasn't in my wheelhouse. Well, and we and we brought in esteemed Professor Kenneth J. Coogan <laughs> uh, to serve as as we were calling him dramaturg for this. I think you I think you served a role that wasn't strictly dramaturgy. So, uh, what, well, what do you think about that, Pop? What do you think about the the nature of um, language being almost too exclusive for audiences to to pick up on or, or, or understand? Uh, in some cases it is, uh, but, you know, as a teacher of English and as a lifelong reader and lover of the language, you know, I have a hard time with that notion of, that language is somehow divorced from everyday life or from people's comprehension. Uh, if you put a little bit of effort forth, you can, you can figure it out. Uh, and, I think to, to a certain extent, the language of Dunn is difficult, but so is the language of Shakespeare. My God, go up to Utah every uh, fall or su summer, and they're laying out Shakespeare every day. Now, some people can't take Shakespeare unless they read the play beforehand, and they have to work at it, but still... The language is what it is. But I think that's what what theater does, right? Theater, um, we're, we're not, aside from, you know, Miss Saigon, where we land the helicopter and, and Fan of the Opera, where we, we take our, our boat through the, the canal and, and uh, what other big spectacular, Les Mis, where we create the barricades and, and Wicked, where we fly them around. I guess I've just described a whole bunch of musicals, haven't I? Um what we, what do we have but language and the and the discussion and the the characters talking to each other? We're, we're, we are not a generally a spectacular art form, or is that is that naive? Are we really a spectacular art form? What do you think, Tina? Uh, no, you're right. I I agree. I enjoy language. I like the challenge. I like uh, learning about it and training myself to try to communicate it in the best way possible. I. If there isn't a word that I, there were tons of words I didn't know, just look it up and figure it out and try to make it part of the natural um, part of that particular character or try to make it a way in which you are communicating. Because the, the, the fact is that that type of speech was that particular character. And so it can define a character. It can define where they're from. It can define who they're talking to. It can define so many things. So yeah, absolutely. Language is a huge way in how we communicate with each other. I think that in an art form that is so language centric, um, that this play especially takes great care in, in being very specific about the language that it uses and not just the language, but the punctuation, which is what I wanted to sort of transition to. I don't know if it's a disability or a skill that I particularly have, but if the actor doesn't make me hear the language, I won't listen to it. I'll start looking at the movement or is the, um, 
is the actor connected emotionally uh, to the moment? I won't hear it unless they make me hear it, right? And so um, all of those parts all have to get stacked up together. So when the language in the play is really difficult, right? All of those other things, the movement, the emotional context, the objectives, the tactics and the language all have to stack together like in in like a like a sandwich for me to hear it. Well, well, this will give me a transition then to talking about about punctuation, because she makes a great deal in the in Edson makes a great deal in wit in talking about the difference between a comma and a semicolon, for example, and the difference between a period and an exclamation point and and is is. Is punctuation, when when you look at a script, Tina, for the first time, does punctuation stand out to you as a guidepost to how a, a, a line is meant to be delivered, what the subtext might be, what the meaning of the sentence it is? It has to. Those are the few words that are written on the page for you to examine who that particular character is. It has to be, it has to inform everything from what it is they're trying to say to what it is, at the how loud they might be saying it to... Uh, where the pause is, what's causing that that pause, it's very important. Well, I know. In, in, so in our first rehearsals, in our first readings of plays, whenever we get together as a cast uh, to read the play out loud for the first time together, one of the things that 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 we sort of strive to do is we encourage everyone to read exactly what's on the page as it's written, not what they think is written or what they imagine has been written, and that that a comma. Pay attention to the commas, pay attention to the periods, pay attention to the ellipses versus versus the hyphen. And this play makes a great deal about about the semicolon. What's a semi what's a what is a semicolon for, Dad? What's a semicolon? What does it do? Why would I use a semicolon in place of a comma? Well, dryly, if you want to speak, it connects uh, two independent clauses. That is, that each clause has a subject and a verb and can stand alone as a as a sentence in itself. Um, and why would I use one in place of a period or a comma? But I want to talk about wit and the notion of wit as we understand it and as a way it might have been understood in Dunn's time. Okay. If you look at the title with the semicolon in it, you might look at it the same way you would listen to a Jerry Seinfeld joke and say, wow, isn't that a clever thing for me to look at for that moment? For that moment. But if you look at... The construction of the prose that Dunn wrote when he was writing his meditations or his sermons, he wrote in long, loose sentences, uh, sometimes periodic sentences, uh, ladled in, but the sentence would run on and on and on and on, sentences, and they would be connected sometimes by comma and uh, conjunction, sometimes by a simple semicolon. And if when you put that semicolon between the W and T, you were thinking of the way he constructed his prose with the long, loose sentences, that would be the wit that the way that he understood it. Okay. Now, in our sense, in modern times, semicolons are fairly dry things used to connect independent clauses, as I say, commas preceding uh, conjunctions as a rule, but not necessarily in two short sentences you could use simply a comma. There's a a Robert uh, Frost poem. Some versions had a semicolon, some versions had a comma, but Frost uh, finally 
said, shut up and quit arguing about it. It's a semicolon. And I mean, but he knew why it was a sem- there is There's something more than just a, um, a dry grammatical connection there uh, to the writer at any rate. And it, there should be to the reader, except that we're not very good readers anymore, actually. Uh, that's why... I don't know. I've been out of academia for so damn long that I, I don't know how well uh, Dunn is respected anymore. I know that in the uh, uh, in the period of history immediately following his death, he was very popular. Uh, poets tried to emulate him all the way around, and they created a metaphysical school because they followed Dunn. Go forward a hundred years, didn't care for Dunn at all. He had dropped out of favor, had all but disappeared until the early part of the uh, 20th century when T.S. Eliot comes along. And T.S. Eliot's poems, like The Wasteland, like Ash Wednesday, they're so damn complex. I mean, you have to have read widely just the way uh, you have to have read done widely to understand it. Uh, as far as I know, people are still trying to explicate the wasteland. I, you know, I, I don't know. There are so many uh, uh, allusions and references that that do not readily come to mind with the modern reader. So, um, but as I say, right now, I don't know where he stands. Is that part of, do you think that part of that is that things are, with that such complexity, aren't being written anymore either? Well, I don't think they're being thought anymore. If you take a look at the condition of poetry today, you're limited to essentially poetry slams. Uh, people, it is so personal and so uh, individual, that it, it pertains to me, 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 my, 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 I, 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 rarely to you. You know, except how you relate to me. You know, it's very, very personal. And so you don't have this wide-ranging uh, philosophical search for meaning, for allusion, for substance. I think that, that specifically in Edson being so smart as to choose John Donne for its toughness to understand, which I think is a very, uh, it's a good reflection on what Vivian was. She's tough to understand, tough to get close to, tough to um, dissect. Well, that's reflected in the, in, the, in the play as well. We have flashback scenes where she sort of berates students for not um, stepping up to the complexity of the work required of them to understand these, these poems. Wasn't T.S. Eliot a huge critic of John Donne? Oh, he's a fan. Was a fan? I thought yeah, he was a critic. He, oh, he's a fan. In fact, he's, it was his poetry that reawakened an interest in Donne at the early part of the 20th oh, century. I thought I read a couple of criticisms of his well, and, the, of Donne know, and, and they weren't positive. He, but, I mean, they, they wrote similarly is oh. what I'm talking about. I, so I, I, I don't know Eliot's mind. I, I have not read anything that he, where he was critical of Donne. But you, you may well be right. I, I don't know. Uh as we were all talking about this, I don't know what Vivian Baring or what Margaret Edson's experience was in grad school or undergrad when she was studying, but I wonder if she was surrounded by a bunch of Vivian Barings. Because I know my experience when I was in grad school, I had to take uh, Renaissance uh, drama in the English department, and it was uh, much like this. We're all sitting around a table, and all of the students were all competing with each other in terms of using the, the largest words and the most philosophical ideas in order to find favor with the teacher. And they weren't really getting at the heart of like 
what we were studying. And I found it really frustrating as as a theater student, because uh, as a I feel as a as as a theater um, director or participant that what we're trying to do with audiences is not only get them to think, but we're trying to get them to feel simultaneously at the same time. Um, But and, and so I'm just wondering if that was her experience and that's why she could write about she could create a character like this. And interestingly enough, if you watch videos of Margaret Edson, she is the opposite of Vivian Baring in terms of temperament. She's so very sweet and so very humble, but an intellectual genius. Can you be a Vivian Baring and teach sixth grade? <laughs> you can. I think I think you might. I think you might have to be. You might have to have a certain uh, sensibility. You taught high school, and you're you're the masculine. Vivian Baring. Oh, come on. <laughs> uh, but but the, the, the one at the end of the play, not at the beginning of the play. Okay. That's what I'm meaning. Yes. So he, so, so dad has, has talked about his um, connection to the semicolon and its, and its separation between two um, types of thought. It's used in the title and it's used in the play. What, what did you take away from the, the very importance of the, the, the central idea of the semicolon in the play? Well, I can remember prior to us working on the show, coming in and and uh, looking at the Ian Ashford section of the play, and us talking about the comma versus the semicolon, and I remember you were like, "Yeah, the comma is just like turning the page. It's like turning the page. It's like a breath. It's so simple." And in that moment. Uh, the breath and the turning of the page, I, uh, I got emotional as you were, as you were, you know, helping me with my lecture, uh, because I think that's what we want in the, the, the process between going from life to death to afterlife. Some of us don't believe in the afterlife, but we want it just to be a breath. We want it we just want to turn the page. I think we're afraid of what's going to happen at the end. And so we long for that. And We long for a, a, a comma in place of a semicolon. Yeah. I, I, and I, a period I, in place of an Yeah, I don't point. think any of us want pain or, or strife or agony. I think we, we long for that. And so the fact that she, she says in the play that she's tough and she is tough and she has to go through this very tough experience and that she's honest with herself. Vivian Baring is honest with herself enough to say at the end of the play that it's not easy and my journey has not been easy, uh, that it is a semicolon. And she says to the audience, I'm sorry, I can't give you what you want. I can't give you that easy process that we're all longing for, right? Because uh, that's that's what I long for, but I, I don't think that's what I'm facing. And I don't think many of us are facing that. Well, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off script a little bit here, mm-hmm. um, because right now, uh, your wife, my mother, is... Um, in the process, uh, she's just been diagnosed with spinal meningitis. We thought maybe she'd had a stroke and she's been in the hospital now for a few days and will probably be there for a few more. Um, and 
she's suffering from early onset dementia. She has some comprehension problems. But before, you know, when we were talking about that, you and me, as well as she and I, um, we, we talked about her uh, um, fears of what came next. We've not been a particularly religious family, so I don't know that, that we have great hope for um, eternal life in the Eden hereafter. But there's still a certain amount of fear, I think, in, in that process. And you're, you're what, 96, 97 years old? 104. And <laughs> we've had some discussions about end-of-life processes. What Do these seem more immediate outside of the hysterical poetry and, and uh, um, spiritual romance of, of, of growing old and, and facing termination? Well, for me, the punctuation at the end of life is neither a semicolon nor a comma. It's a period. Um, I don't know exactly how my wife feels about it, but over the years, uh, you know, she was raised Catholic, very conservative uh, German Catholicism in central Minnesota. And uh, I, uh, through her marriage to me and uh, her exposure to uh, the three sons, uh, I suspect she has loosened up and moved away from that a great deal. And I don't know uh, what she looks forward to in the afterlife, if anything. We have not discussed it uh, in any kind of detail. But I suspect she feels, as I do, that the punctuation is a period. Is that, how scary is that? Not to me at all. I mean, they're, they're, the world got along without me for a long time. I don't think it'll make much difference to the world when I go. I, well, I disagree. Well, it, it'll hurt my feelings. <laughs> we have some uh, subtle connections, but if I made any contribution at all, it will be borne out in my students. Several of them have written books, by the way, and sent them <laughs> to me, which is uh, a nice thing to have as a, uh, as an ex-teacher. But other than that, I don't think that the world or the universe, or if there is a God, is going to be disappointed in my passing. Has your, has your thought process about that changed at all since you're a younger man? I mean, does, you're, you're, 80, well, I you're 84. I had a career as a monk, you know, outside of college. I, I was... That's not a joke. You were... No, I was a monk. I, I was in the monkery, <laughs> if you wish, in uh, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, the TOR, Third Order Regular of the Franciscan Order, uh, as opposed to the OFMs, the Order for <laughs> Minors. You know, I could go on with this bullshit. It's like Air Force versus Navy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and anyway, I, um, I went in with great anticipation, actually. It was shortly after I graduated from college, so I didn't go into it blindly. But I was very quickly disappointed and disillusioned and when I left, I have to say I didn't miss it at all. And it was then that the gradual erosion of my Catholicism you know, began. Although later on in life, when I married your mother, who was this uh, uh, one hard, fast Catholic and with German background, I, I chaired a steering committee to set up a parish council. I became involved with 
the church again, uh, and then with the uh, growth of my sons and interactions with them and the world in general, that kind of eroded away and left. And uh, I must say, I don't miss it one whit. Well, it's funny. <laughs> I, 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 one whit. Well done. Um, <laughs> That's W-H-I-T. Yeah, I figured as much. I see um, you kept the haircut, though. <laughs> <laughs> I find it really funny because I didn't ask you anything at all about about religion. And it's it, it's automatic, though, isn't it? The, the approach to mortality immediately... What brings to mind is is the the spiritual questions involved, as opposed to any sort of naturalistic questions of just being no more. Tina, you're nodding like crazy. No, I agree. I mean, it is a funny thing, even if you aren't a religious person, a religious person yeah. that that's where everybody's mind tends to go when it gets to be that close. And um, it is interesting. In, in some instances, I, I had a friend whose wife died of cancer some years ago. Fairly young age, by my view, she was only 69. And she had a background of Catholicism, very structured, uh, straight-laced, a uh, main Catholicism, for that matter. And she was suffering from a, a whole litany of cancers. And she was beginning to grasp at straws about uh, what lay ahead of her. And she was a what they told, or what they used to call fallen away Catholics. And so she made her husband, who was an atheist, by the way, take her to Mass one day to see if she could reconnect in some manner through the ritual. And Catholicism is rife with ritual. It's great theater. Uh, and I spoke with her afterwards, and she said, nothing, no connection at all. And she went to her death uh, stoically and uh, no worries about God or the afterlife, certainly based on her Catholicism, her ex-Catholicism. So, a period rather than a... Uh, again, a yeah, a period point. rather than a semicolon. Hmm. Emery, let's bring Barbara King into the conversation. Barbara, thanks for coming out. Let me introduce, let me introduce you really quickly before we, let me introduce you real quick. Um, Barb hails from the Midlands of England, Staffordshire. Did I say that? Yeah, Staffordshire. And went to the Institute of Linguistics in, in Birmingham. You studied some French and German. Is that right? That's right. Ended up in Chicago. A little bit of Russian, actually, too. I should throw that in. Well, since to this episode is all about... Good Lord, what is that? What did you just say? That just means, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. But that, that, well, then you say, хорошо, спасибо, avoid. I would never be able to say that. <laughs> but this is good because since this episode is all about words and uh, uh, the use of some of the poetry and the words in the, in, in, in the play, that's going to come in, in real handy. You came here by way of Chicago. I assume you did some theater out there. Did do some theater out there. Um, one of the things I was most proud of out there was was working with court theater at the University of Chicago. Oh, wow. And uh, we did Day and the Death of Joe Egg. And the woman who I played, the uh, uh, I, I was the one who was really horrified by the, by the spastic character. Yeah, hanging in a closet, um, right? Yes. Yeah. And um, the, the woman who played 
the uh, uh, Joe Egg's mom was Megan Fay, who has gone on to become quite a good character actress. She she popped up in something on Netflix the other day, and I was going, oh, I know I her. Stage with her. <laughs> and then you ended up in in Vegas. Was that a yep. that must have been an interesting shift of gears? It was a very interesting shift of gears to go from Chicago to little old Boulder City. You know where I live. Yeah. In, uh, <laughs> Uh, a town of 15,000 from, from a town, a city of millions. Was, uh, uh, for, for those outside the state, a suburban uh, town outside of Vegas by about 20 miles. The little town that built the Hoover Dam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was it like? So, And you hit the ground doing theater in Vegas probably from the moment you got off the plane I, here. I did not. Uh, I was one of those women who, when I got married, I gave up the theater, basically, and I, I still continued to work, and then I had uh, my daughter, and um, until my divorce, I didn't really look at back at look at doing theatre again. Yeah, yeah, some, it some just time sort of got put on the back burner, which was sad. But um, so, <laughs> I guess a good thing that came out of my divorce was that I got back. Well, you came. Well, you came back with a vengeance because you played you played Ian e. Ashford in our production of of Wit. And since we're spending a lot of time talking about words and mm-hmm. punctuation specifically, she is the character that really makes the argument for um, specific punctuations in poetry. And I'm wondering because she yes. she spends a lot of time talking about John Donne. Is it fair to ask you about John Donne as an English woman? Is his? Do you study him with a, a different sort of intensity than we perhaps do here? I'll tell you, I, I did study John Donne, the poetry of John Donne, yeah. in high school. Um, not the holy sonnets, however. He was well known before, many years before, he's turned to religious writing for writing rather erotic poetry, lovely poetry, love, you know, poetry. And uh, Isn't there one about the flea or something? Yes, uh, <laughs> where he's wanting to be the flea that, that, is, that is attacking his lover's breast or something. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, Ken read, Ken read yeah. me that poem, I, actually. I don't, I, don't know, nope, I don't know poetry, but I know what I like. <laughs> um, <laughs> did, you, did you feel, was that helpful in putting together the character of, of Ashford, that connection to, to, to Dunn? I think I understood something of her passion for it. All, because... I mean, he he is a very clever writer, right? Um, and um, fascinating to unwrap the meanings behind his words, right? Yeah. Well, let's talk about Ashford as a as a scholar of that type of poetry. It's kind of funny. One of my favorite lines in the play is where she she sort of sniffs her nose at Shakespeare in a way as being too hysterical and dramatic for the for a, a true scholar. Um, I always got the impression that Ashford was a t- well, was almost a vehicle in the play for a certain perspective. Um, is, did, did you have that in perspective or was, was there something uh, what, what purpose the, the, is the, the perspective for? being um, the, the text the thing and, and, and you should start there and not with a feeling you know feeling has no business in uh, well, there, I think there are a couple of things that she does. I think she sets up. I think she sets up for Vivian just the nature of of scholarly work and the sort of um, intense drive that it takes to really oh, become yes. the best in your field. And I think she also s- tries to couple that with with a sort of live your life mentality. Sure, work hard. Yeah, because um, 
I think Vivian is very, um, she has tunnel vision when it comes to her work. There is nothing outside of it, even when she has been told very plainly by, um, by Ashford to, to go out, spend time with friends. She, she, and and the, the playwright says, when she, when she admonishes her about that, she, she says it tenderly. Yeah. It's almost as though, don't waste, don't waste your life. Live some of it, you know? Because it's short and you, you, you move on into a whole other separate... You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the vehicle, like that she's supposed to be the representation of like language and 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 um, in terms of standards of language. But she's actually very, the, very high standards. Yeah. Yeah. She's actually the vehicle of of more balance, you know, yeah. and 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 compassion, because both of her scenes end with her. Uh, like you said, go out, spend time with friends, go to the park. And then the second scene, you know, you read her uh the book, The Runaway Bunny. So, yeah. The, well, the first is, of course, a flashback. So it's Vivian's recollection, mm-hmm. right? So there's automatically a perspective yeah. skew to yeah. that. Uh, or the, the second is 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 real. Well, that's well, to, it, to my mind, anyway. Well, we had some questions about we that. We did we, have some debate about right, that, or about whether or not me. in that moment Ashford was a was a figment of Vivian's imagination. Was she a literal angel coming in to release her from life? And what you know, but you mentioned let's 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 not get too drawn into that just yet. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the runaway bunny a little bit because we are talking about language. I always was fascinated with that choice of literature. And it's just a, it's a very simple children's book in the face of this other grand literature, the, the, the poetry of John Donne and the literature of, of um, Margaret Edson herself, you know, her, her yeah. style and her language. But the choice is perfect because yeah. Ashford talks about the little bunny is, is forever running away and his mom is always, will, oh, she says, I'll always be there, you know, I'll to find you or whatever yeah and and ashford i think says something along the lines of oh look it's a it's an allegory for life you know wherever you wherever you go there's god or you know i mean it's it's actually one of my favorite moments in the play where where this it's very powerful well but it also it tells me something about ashford and her ability to analyze not just if poisonous minerals and if that tree, right? the poisonous mineral speech, but also, you know, all the poetry you've done, but these smaller, very simple works that we would consider simplistic, she finds I a very... What's lovely about Ashford because I think she embraces stuff like that, you know? And she um, doesn't comment on the punctuation in Runaway Bunny <laughs> no, at all. She doesn't. She doesn't. Oh, by the way, I do want to just say to, to the two of you, Happy National Punctuation Day. Is that today? Is, <laughs> is that it old? today? today. <laughs> September, what's today? September 20, it is? Wow, that's, wow, that's kind of ironic. That's something. I think it's kind of creepy. Oh, wow. Well, then let's talk about it. Did you have a, did you have a feeling about the use of the semicolon? You know, we use the semicolon in the advertising, W semicolon T. Yeah. Um, did you have a, a, a sort of perspective on why the semicolon would be considered in her lords hysterical. Well, I think I, I think I, cause you asked me this question when I, I, I was sort of prodding her for, you know, what are you, what are we going to talk about? Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
she said, how does your character feel about hysterical punctuation? And she actually uses that term, hysterical punctuation. And uh, so I've been sort of thinking about that because I realized that hysteria was uh, an illness that was put down, that, that was was diagnosed about women, you know, with the... Mm -hmm. the, the Oftentimes, their monthly monthlies caused hysteria. Mm -hmm. So when she uses that word, it seems just very uh, like she's minimizing. Like she, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. almost. Um, but you know, as she as she talks about, uh, especially the exclamation point, uh, and the semicolon is sort of lumped in the same. Um, sort of group, <laughs> yeah. one of the things that uh, that I had sent back to, because I, I, I had to Google semicolon because I didn't know too much about it, but this was really fun, um, that gender stereotypes also come into play. Semicolons seem most closely associated with the florid emotional writing often ascribed to women. <laughs> rather than the spare, chiseled prose with which men generally are credited. <laughs> where, where did you find that? It was a, a Chicago Tribune uh, writer, staff writer, a woman uh, who back. This was back in late '99, and they had act, She'd actually. Uh, she, she'd written this after about a month after. Edson won the Pulitzer for wit. Oh, oh really? really? And so she mentions it to to <laughs> quite a lot. Right. Um, and, and talks about, you know, when the semicolon first arrived in the English language, I guess Dunn did use it in like 1612. Yeah. Um, although it's not the approved text that E.M. <laughs> Ashford likes for this, for Death Be Not Proud. Right. But... Um, yeah, it, it had been around in, in English. Shakespeare used it in 1605 or whatever. And uh, um, there are some modern writers that will that use it abundantly. Steinbeck was one in Grapes of Wrath, I guess. And then, you know, others that will sort of avoid it like the plague. It's really sort of a strange... It's a strange piece of punctuation because... I guess they say you you you, sh you could sh you could you should use it where you could use a period, mm -hmm. um, but it almost seems like it's taken on this cachet now that people who use it are somehow more intelligent, intellectually The merit badge of the semicolon. I admit I never use a semicolon because it's scary. Because you're probably unsure of where... where well, yeah, I'm just I not... a lot of people feel that. Yeah. And when, I have to admit, I use them in text messages. I will use it. Of I will course drop, you do, Jill. Of drop, course you do. I will do. drop a semicolon into a text <laughs> message if I feel it's appropriate because I feel like it really is an evocative. This is the, the dumbest phrase I'm ever going to say in my life. It feels like in a very. It feels like a very evocative piece of grammar. There you go. It feels like a, a, a punctuation mark that that has that has it something has to say. What well, does? It's it's you know it sets you up. It sets you up to continue the thought without having to. To completely come to a stop, it gives you. A, the, she talks about breath in the play. You know, the comma is just yes. a breath, but for me, the semicolon is the bigger breath. It's sort of a sort of inhaling of, and and now what else? Yeah. 
<laughs> I've, I've stumped the panel. <laughs> well, because I think the semicolon is almost like the uh, the trampoline that sort of catapults you <laughs> onto the next thought and and, and phrase. Oh, I like that. Uh, the, 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 the trampoline of yeah, punctuation marks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like that. Does it feel, would you consider it, uh, as Barbara, not as EMS, would you consider it hysterical punctuation? No. No. I, um, I actually am snobbish enough to believe it does suggest a certain level of intellect. Then I have a question. Yeah. Just like the E.M. Ashford question. So why is she so hard on Vivian uh, for using the semicolon? Because I think for this, she's very, she's very um, snobbish about the text that, that she uses and her, um, the name, of course, she drops all the time is Helen Gardner. Well, we should just take a moment to explain who who Helen Gardner is. Dame Helen Gardner now, uh, actually. Um, I believe she was an emeritus professor of English literature at uh, the University of Oxford. And I, she's the she's the actual scholar upon whom E.M. Ashford is is based. Yes, that's right. Yeah, her, her work on, on Dunn and any number of... of quintessential... Uh, yeah. Exactly right. That, that scene. For, for Don's yeah. yeah. That scene is about using the right version, and for whatever reason, the book is checked out to the exactly. library. Vivian gets the wrong book, and it's the Gardner version at Ashford. I remember, like during rehearsal, you brought me an edition, the Helen Gardner edition uh, of um, of Dunn's poems. Of Dunn's poems. Yes. yes. So yes, she's she's published. Well, and but that brings me back to the idea that I don't think. I, you know, we keep talking about the semicolon, the semicolon, the semicolon. I don't know that that it is the specifics of the semicolon that are important for Ashford as much as it is the importance of using the correct punctuation, the the punctuation that, that Dunn intended, and that perhaps in in this instance, well, okay. in Death Be Not Proud, that semicolon did not exist. It was the comma that was important because Gardner had the right punctuation. Yeah. <laughs> See, I get the feeling that in all probability at that time, it just, in some respects, punctuation didn't exist. You know, I said he started using it in 1610, but, but you know, they, they could on a whim decide whether to use it or not. And goodness knows, spelling was, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever they wanted it to we, be. We were talking to my father earlier, and he was made the point that a lot of times punctuation was sort of determined by the typesetter mm -hmm. or by the editor or by someone down the line and not necessarily from the original source. True, and who knows what folio, you know, the two different versions um, were, were on. Yeah. But um, she really does... Um, Ashford is the character. She she just is really very uh, sharp about the fact that, that this is this is the only text that matters. The the uh, the other with, and I mean she she she's very flamboyant about the way she but she has, she has she reasons for it. it. You know she insults the text. The it's inauthentic. I think is the word that she uses. Inauthentic. Yeah. Uh, to Vivian. Do you think though that it has anything really to do with like? her belief system too well it, it it does sort of gravitate into that doesn't it because yeah. she talks about um you know it, it, 
life and, and life everlasting be separated by nothing but a breath and nothing but a comma. Right. Life, death and the afterlife. Right. And and so I think that's what the play is about. And so I think that's why um, Edson, Margaret Edson, the playwright of wit, decided to put that in the front part of the play because here it is Vivian Baring. She is now going through eight rounds of chemotherapy mm-hmm. and probably pondering on what her outcome is. And so that's either consciously or unconsciously. She, this is the, the, the image that she brings up first. She brings up the, this past image of her teacher. Right, because they have sort of made her, that, and, and the scene before with mm-hmm. her dad. Right. That, those, this is what has made her. Mm-hmm. Her, her, her dad's influence, the, her, her um, um, love of, of words started mm-hmm. at the moment that they talked about the flopsy bunnies. Mm-hmm. And she learned what the word soporific meant, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I think her joy as a child just sprang from that. And then it, 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 it took her through. Um, well, we, we don't hear, we don't hear from, we don't hear about Vivian's mother. We see a flashback with her father. And I think in a lot of ways, Ashford represents a mother figure. And that, that instinct of hers, that, that there is nothing between life and death but a breath, it's a very easy process of stepping into death, is something that she carries with her. And we're meant to take that with us as we go through Vivian's journey of realizing that that's not right, that the artists may have it wrong, that the poets and the artists who suggest, and as Ashford does, that the, the, the transition from life to death is a very simple one, nothing but a breath, are wrong. And that, that, that romanticized version of passing is not the experience that Vivian has. She goes through quite a painful transition between life and death and actually says there at the end when she reads that poem when she reads death be not proud for that last time she says semicolon exclamation point that those are the punctuations the hysteria she goes back to the hysterical punctuation right Mm -hmm. and it's the hysterical punctuation that is more true perhaps not as romantic and quiet and subtle but it's more true in her experience i think that's i i i I don't know that i that i'm as literate as that in my interpretation in as much as when she has all these flashbacks and she's looking back at her life and yes, she's going through the pain, but I don't think it's necessarily about that. I think the trend, I think she comes to realize that at the end of the day, the thing that matters is humanity and kindness. And it's the thing that she's seeking most of all. So, um, and just to, just to speak to that, when you do come back in that last scene, you ask her, oh, would you like me to read some done? And she goes, no. <laughs> and that's when. And that the, is one of my favorite. <laughs> I mean, it, it was, even as sad as that scene was to see her so debilitated, uh-huh. people, uh, the audience would always give her a, a nice laugh <laughs> when she said that. Get us, get us away from the done. Well, that, that, that then we should talk about that last scene do you think that Ashford is is there in that moment or is yes. she, she she's not a, a flashback I, she's I, not a vision she's not a maybe um, we should kind of talk about that so in previous uh buzzes uh or or talkbacks uh uh after the show there were audience members who thought that you were an angel 
they were audience members. Oh. Yeah, that you were yeah, that you were in her mind, or that w- it was actually a real moment that was happening for her in the in real time in in, in the hospital. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, prob- I may not have said anything during the buzz if that did come up, but my, my feeling uh, was always that the, the, she was there. Well, she okay. was there, and, and she had heard. Mm-hmm. Be- she was at for her great-grandson's birthday, and she had heard this terrible news mm-hmm. about her old student. And yes, I don't know if you coincidence rem- may be, but yes. I don't know if you remember, but I think the entrance that comes right after that, I think Jason comes in to see. And doesn't acknowledge me. Right. You would exit, and then we allowed some space, right? And then he would come in after because we wanted to keep that a bit ambiguous yeah. yes. so that the audience would get to make that decision for themselves. And there was one particular buzz where everybody got pretty heated about it because, you know, people bring their own narrative to the play. Yeah. And so I just love that. And, you know, it's something I even discuss in my class. And, you know, without seeing a production, the students, they also bring their own perspective. Uh, and uh, they oftentimes think that uh, that you are an angel. That's a big well, one. You know, I, mean, I, I think they're attracted to that metaphysical idea, you know. And, and, and maybe the, uh, um, the joy is in having, being able to interpret that, that it, that it, mm-hmm. it, that it is just a little, you know, obscure because um you know nobody acknowledges nobody sees her in the room or you know it's it's, so it it could very well be but from from my own personal (laughs) point of view in in developing her i always thought that she was real at that point me too it was a nice (laughs) but it it was a nice mystery as with as with a lot of shows it's nice to have some of those unanswered questions that the audience can answer for themselves and create their own experience yeah i don't think you ever want to spoon feed an audience do you i i I don't think so (laughs) oh no you always want to keep mystery create create mystery keep mystery leave unanswered questions keep people talking Create a sequel in your mind afterwards, right? <laughs> yeah. So we, we talked a little bit about the the buzz, Barb. Do you remember any? Uh, were any? Did any of the buzz uh, feedback stand out to you? I know it's been a couple of years now, but I wonder if you didn't have well, any. Not memories. specifically from my character, but I just remember what an emotional experience it was for many of our audience members. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them had heard about it because it's it's sort of a well known well-known play i do think that audiences were just carried away by the by the beauty of the of the words of the experience um takes a powerful actress to do something like that tina did a hell of a job didn't she did a hell of a job yeah Mm -hmm. yeah we're proud a hell of a job thank you for coming out and doing this you're welcome this was magnificent fun And I think that about wraps it up for this episode of Behind the Buzz. I, I want to thank Barbara King, Tina Rice. I want to thank my dad for coming out and joining us in this conversation about words, 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 and 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 punctuation. <laughs> I 
that where you want me to say something? Or you just nodded at me. That's good. No, do you the nod. Do, th- just do a bigger do, nod. Do you do want me louder, to thank you? I'll nod. thank you, Joe. Uh, oh, and I'd like to thank Joe Kukin. And I'd like to thank Anne-Marie <laughs> Perez <laughs> for spending some time talking about, uh, I think, was one of our, our, our proudest um, works to date. Uh, if you haven't yet, smash that subscribe button. And just a quick reminder, in the state of Nevada, early voting begins October 17th. Giant Leap Industries.